know, deeply embedded in our American culture is the, the idea that freedom is one principle, it's one truth that is worth dying for. Uh, we, we celebrate on Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend, we celebrate uh, around uh, November the 11th on Veterans Day. We celebrate those who have given their lives or who are currently serving or have spent time defending our freedom, our freedom of worship, our freedom of life, our freedom of, of ownership of property, all of the freedoms that we've been blessed with uh, in the United States. We celebrate those who are willing to, to shed blood to give up their lives that we might be free. I believe that's one of the very reasons that when we turn on the news right now, so many in America are, are captivated by the, the fight that, is, uh, that we see in the Ukrainian people. We're, we're captivated by, by President Zelensky, who we know has a target on his back hired mercenaries, professional soldiers, those who have been trained simply to, to kill like uh, people like him have been thwarted time and time again. And, and we celebrate those who will stand and fight for freedom. What we don't hear a lot on the news, and I, I mentioned this uh, last week or the week before in the message, was that a, a part of the battle for the Ukraine is about religious freedom. Vladimir Putin has a desire to see the, the old USSR brought back, and a large part of that was a, a single state church that would, would rule over the, the religion of all peoples under, under that state. And one of the problems he's had in Ukraine was to begin with, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church split from the Russian Orthodox Church, and there's been more fractures since then. And Ukraine has embraced religious freedom to the extent that Baptist and, and other Protestant religions have made great inroads into uh, the fabric and the culture of the Ukraine. And a Russian dictator who wants to take the nation back to where it was 20 or 30 years ago hates religious freedom. And, and so you have the Ukrainian people, many who may very well not only be fighting for their homes, for their property, for their families, but they're, they're fighting for their ability to worship as they believe they ought to be allowed to, to worship God. That sounds a whole lot like the American story. And I think that that's part of why our hearts are, are connected and, and, and that rings in our ears. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage that, that reminds us of a much higher form of freedom and a much greater sacrifice that was made to purchase that freedom. And we don't have to go very far in our reading today. We're in Galatians. As we continue to walk through the book of Galatians, uh, we are set free in Christ. That theme for our study comes from this text, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, we're going to read through verse uh, 12, but our focus today is really going to be built off of what we find right there in Galatians 5, 1. The Christian Standard Bible very directly and succinctly says this, for freedom, Christ set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded or from regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept the, any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who were disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. Uh, Paul is not mincing words there, and we talked about this a little bit last week. Now, Paul's primary argument, his theological treaty, so to speak, here in Galatians, where he built his argument, ran from Galatians chapter 2 through uh, Galatians chapter 4. Really, a Chapter 2 is on a personal note. He transitioned to kind of a doctrinal uh, uh, approach in chapter 3 through chapter 4, and we've completed that. Now Paul is going to come to his application part. But even in his application, he actually gives us one command here, one application that we're going to talk about. But even in that, he is still vehemently defending the gospel. And there's a reason for that. So I want to look at this. I simplified this text. We're going to look at it in, in, in a couple big, big points. The first one's going to contain most of our thoughts. The first one is this. Christ set us free. If you have a relationship with Christ, you have been set free. And, and it was for freedom, Paul says. And this is not just an intensifier, but Christ set us free so that we could live in freedom. Christ didn't just set us free from the, the future wrath of God so that we could go to heaven. Christ set us free so that we could live free, so that we could enjoy freedom in life. There is no freedom in fear, and when you're living in fear, you're not free. And so... Paul uh, tells us here that Christ set us free. He set us free from sin. He set us free from the, the impact and the effects of the law. He set us free from religion. Christ has set us free from, from all of that. J Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 31, he tells the, the Pharisees there, he said, if you, if you know me, if you believe in me, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So just walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ sets us free from the bondage that comes through religion, the bondage that comes through the law. Now, I don't want to, we're not going to flesh all of that out because we spent weeks doing that as we walk meticulously through Galatians. But there's, there's some things here that Paul addresses that I want you to see. 
The first one is this. Paul is not anti-good deeds. He's not anti-law. He sounds a lot like it, but only be careful there. He's not against the even doing some of the Jewish rituals. Paul still, in a lot of ways, lived like a Jew. He's not against the circumcised. He's not against the uncircumcised. And you see that here in this text, especially in verse 4, when he says, uh, well, back up, I'm sorry, set the stage in verse 2 through 4. He says, take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ's not going to benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You remember there's, there's one instance where Paul had his companion circumcised so that it, it, the, the gospel could be further. Paul tells us, yes, you're set free from rules of the law, but if you eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols was going to cause a brother or sister to stumble, you as a mature believer shouldn't do it. Just don't. And so Paul's not anti-following the rules, if you see what I mean. Paul's not anti-doing good deeds. He's not against the circumcised. He's not against the uncircumcised. What he is against is this idea that you have to follow these laws. You have to obey this religion, or you have to be circumcised to walk in a relationship with a holy God. In fact, he, he expresses it here in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. So the issue in our lives is not, are we circumcised or are we not circumcised? And, and, and you take that out not just to deal with circumcision, but, but have I ever had a, a, a drink, a, a, a beer, or have I not drank a beer? Okay. Do, do I ever... Uh, uh, Say a bad word, do I ever not say a bad word? Now, do I ever uh, fulfill a specific religious duty? Do, do I attend church every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night? Or do I skip sometimes, okay? Do I, do I follow the religious exercises or do I not follow the religious exercises? That is not the issue. The issue is this. Are you trying to be justified by the religious exercises? Because if you're trying to not sin so that you can be justified in the eyes of God, or if you're trying to obey some religious uh, exercise, whether it be having a quiet time, a quiet time's a good example of this. Does having a quiet time every morning, spending, getting up, and the quiet time was a term that was used a lot when I was a youth, you get up in the morning, before you do anything else, you open your Bible, you spend a little bit of time with the Lord. You sit there with your cup of coffee or whatever. You spend time in God's Word. You pray, whether you take three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. You spend time with the Lord. That is a good thing. There's nothing bad about that. But if, and somehow, in some way in your mind, you think that that is going to justify you before a holy God, there is a problem with that. I remember that idea of the quiet time was so pressed into me as a, as a student growing up in high school and then early years of college that I had this idea that, in fact, I actually had a youth minister say this, that, you know, if you don't have your quiet time in the morning, you're just going to have a horrible day. And so I was always worried, if I don't get up and if I don't at least, at least read a Bible, at least don't spend some time with the Lord, my day is going to fall apart. And this, this is really when it hit me. 
We were up all night long with Katie, our daughter who, who, who was ill. We had to drive her to Dallas. We had spent all night long, and we were facing some very difficult decisions regarding her life and death. And there early in the morning, well, I guess this was the middle of the night, I, I realized I had not had a quiet time that morning. But God was still with me. And so I began to ask the question, wait a minute, what time does he wear off? Is it two in the morning that Jesus wears off if you don't get up and have your, if you don't have your quantum? Is it four? Is it six? Is it eight? Because a quiet time had become a religious exercise for me. And if you're trying to be justified before a holy God through your efforts and religious exercise, you cannot be. In fact, if you're trying to be justified, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. Because essentially you're saying what we've talked about. You're saying that Jesus' death on the cross and my relationship with him is necessary, but not enough. I have to believe him. I trust in Christ, but I also have to do ABC or just A or whatever it happens to be. And so what I want you to see here, Paul was not anti-good deeds. He's not anti the law. He's not anti-circumcision. Circumcision. He is anti this idea that anything can get you to God outside of faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what he's trying to, to continue to press here. And so he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. That, that very thought there reminds me of a text we're going to come back to in a little bit. You've fallen from your first love. So as you walk through this, I want you to notice, I'm going to divide, give you two more headings here that I want you to, to see. The first one is this. There are some words that fill the, the, the paragraph here that are associated with this exercise of me trying to be good enough, of me trying to be religious enough to, to live up to Christ. And these are the words that Paul uses. Verse 1, he uses the word slavery. Slavery. If you are trying to, you think it's up to you to live a good enough life, to, 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 to have a relationship with a holy God, you're enslaved by the flesh, or you're enslaved by religion. You're enslaved to the law. It's slavery is what Paul calls it. Paul says that you are under a yoke of slavery. The idea of that yoke represents the burden that you must bear, what you have to, the work that you have to do. And so if it's your idea that you have to do ABCD to measure up to Christ, you're a slave to the things that you're doing. You're yoked. You're, you're carrying a burden, the weight of, of all of these duties that must be done to reach up to God. You're obligated. It's another word that you see appears here. You're obligated. You don't have a choice. Now think about that from the word that he started out this, this paragraph with. Freedom as opposed to obligation. You're under this weight of duty, of obligation, something that you must do. And we're not, we're not talking again once. Hear me. It's not that Paul's, Paul's not encouraging us to do good deeds, but Paul's telling us that you can't trust the good deeds. You're not. And then he goes on to say, and, and also, if you believe that 
any portion of the law is required for a relationship with God, you're obligated to the entire law. That's another phrase, the entire law. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to be good enough. Or I'm going to do this and then I'm going to be good enough. That was, that was my thought as a, as a kid growing up in church. My thought was if I just went to church enough Sundays, that religious exercise, if I went more Sundays than I skipped, then God was going to receive me into his kingdom. He'd have to because I'd shown to be faithful. I went more Sundays than I was out. You're obligated to obey the law. And Paul says that if you, if you accept any portion of the law, you're obligated to the whole law. And then, this is where it really gets scary. You're alienated from Christ. And that's, that's because what you've come to a point of saying is, my trust in Christ, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. So I've got to do this. And you've alienated yourself from the truth of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've fallen from grace. Grace is just the opposite of law. Law says you must. Grace is God's offer. It's his gift. And Paul says that you have fallen from grace. That's where I, I pointed out that reminded me of Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus that we find in Revelation chapter 2, right in the middle of his, his, his appeal to that church at Ephesus you find a church that was doing everything right. They were, they were following the rules. They, they were, they were uh, attacking the fault, those that preached the false gospel. They were doing all the good deeds. They were doing everything right. But Jesus says, I have this against you in verse 4 of Revelation 2. You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned your first love. Do you remember what it's really all about? It's about falling in love with me. It's about walking in a love relationship with me. That's That's what Christianity is. It's about a relationship with the Jesus who died on the cross, who was buried and rose again, and who is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's who we are as Christians. We're worshipers of a holy God who, who died and rose for us, and we live in grace, not out of obligation. And Paul says that you have, you, if you insist on religion, if you insist on the law, if you insist on the rules, you have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen from grace. You're living life on a lower level than when you walk in the grace that comes from God. So those are the words in this text and the phrases that Paul associates with the law and religion. But what struck me most of this text in the first six verses here are the words that are associated with freedom in Christ. And of course, the first one is just that big word, free. You've been set free. What does it mean to be free? And we walk in a relationship with the Holy God. Our focus, our attention, everything is about him. It's not about the rules and regulations. It's not about the distractions. It's about his word, his communion. His spirit dwelling in us and in and, and a relationship as we walk with him every single day. But there's six words here that, that really stood out to me. The first one is grace. We eagerly await through the spirit. Oh, I'm sorry. Back up to the end of verse four. When he says to the, those who were caught up in the law, you've fallen from grace. It's a reminder that we live in grace. Grace. 
if to be, to, to be concerned about religion and the rules and the regulations is to fall from grace, in Christ, we live in his grace. It's by grace, through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we've been saved. Not of ourselves, not of our works, so that we can't even boast about it. It's by grace. Grace, the gift of God, offered to us through the blood of his Son. Grace is, is God giving us something that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. So when we walk in freedom, when we walk in a relationship with Christ, we walk in grace. It's the opposite of slaves. We experience his grace. We experience his free gift of, of, of love and, and, and righteousness poured out upon us. Our relationship with God is, is, a, is something that he offers us freely that we cannot earn. Second, like in verse 6, we eagerly await through the Spirit. We find that relationship with God alive through the Spirit of the living God who has come to dwell with us and to be, be in us. He has sent his spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, so that we might enjoy and rejoice every single day. Regardless of, of the attacks, regardless of what's going on around us, even in the midst of the storm, we can find joy and peace because of his spirit who dwells with us. So when... I mean, think about the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of these words, the difference between grace and slavery, the difference between walking in the spirit and bearing up under the yoke. We in Christ have been set free from that kind of lifestyle. We've been set free from a lifestyle of obligation to a lifestyle of faith. And that's the third word that you see. So through, through the spirit, by faith. It's not about our, uh, what we're obligated to do, what we must force ourselves to do. It's simply by trusting a holy God. That's why all the way back in, in Galatians chapter 3, when the apostle was struggling with the Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's led you away from the grace that you have in Christ? We, we as God's children have the privilege of living a life based on grace, not on obligation based on faith as we walk in a relationship with him. How are we going to get through the tough times in this life? By grace, through faith. So you see grace, his spirit, faith, hope. Look at the word there. It is in him that we have hope. It comes from this relationship, a hope of future righteousness, Hope, not legalism. Hope, not condemnation. In Christ, we've been set free. We've been given freedom so that we can experience a future, something to look forward to. I know last week I was very emotional, and I, I struggled through a large part of the message last week. And a lot of it was what was going on inside of me after serving on Saturday last week. A very difficult chaplain call that came out in the news later Sunday. 
of the, the two young men uh, in our, our community whose lives were taken very tragically and senselessly. And I, I think about even in the darkest of circumstances, when we have Christ, we have hope. We have a future. We have something to look forward to. Regardless of the news that maybe you got from the doctor this week, or, or the tragedy that's happened in your life, or in your home, or in your family, in Christ, there's hope. There's hope. Because he's a, he's a restorer. He's a rebuilder. Jesus is a reconciler. He reconciles us to a relationship with a holy God by grace. It's not dependent upon our goodness. It's dependent upon what he's done, what he's already accomplished. So we have hope. And we even have hope of righteousness. There in verse, verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we have the hope of righteousness. The, the, the scariest thing about the law is that nobody can ever live up. Nobody. Because all you have to do is break one law, one time, and you're deserving of punishment. Right? It, it, so you only murdered one person. Maybe the judge will let you off. There were a whole lot of people that you wanted to murder. There were several that you thought deserved it. But you just killed the one. You can forgive me of that, right? No. If, if, if you're living under law... You die under law, all of it. And so it is impossible for any human to fully live up to the law 100% of the time. We can't do it. In fact, every single one of us in here has already failed. You don't have to worry about failing later today or failing tomorrow. You've already failed. And if God cannot allow sin into heaven, you're already condemned to be separated from God in heaven. You're condemned to a life away from him in hell. And so if you're living under the law, there is no freedom. You're already condemned. There is no righteousness. You already have that mark, that blemish of sin on your life. But in Christ, who shed his blood on the cross, the scripture says to take our sins upon his shoulders, so that we could be forgiven if we would simply come and receive his gift of grace and have his spirit come inside of us and cleanse us and wash us. We have hope of righteousness. In fact, it's amazing to me that the apostle Paul continually refers to even the Corinthian church as saints, holy ones. If you know the story behind the, the Christians at Corinth, some of them were a train wreck. As bad as we're messed up, we, we're not Corinth, okay? Our, we're headed there as a nation. But Paul even referred to them as righteous. Not in their own righteousness, but their righteousness in Christ. So when we're in Christ and we experience his grace by faith, we have hope of righteousness. We can stand pure before a holy God. In heaven, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and he has cleansed us. You know, one of the questions that 
And we used to ask in EE, and I still use this uh, a question every once in a while when I'm seeking to share the gospel with someone. One of the first questions I'll ask is, if you were to die today, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? And so you can learn a lot about where somebody stands with how they answer that question. But probably the most important diagnostic question is the second one. So imagine you died and you're standing before the throne of God. And he asked you, why should I let you in to my heaven? One of the first things, that's how you'll know what you're trusting. If your mind immediately goes to something like this, well, I've been a good father, or I've been a good mother, or I've tried to be a good person, I've tried to do good deeds. If that's where your mind goes, you're living in law. And scripture says you're condemned. Because nobody can do enough good deeds to measure up to get into heaven. Nobody. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Nobody can. And so that's Paul saying this in a different way here in Galatians 5. You've alienated yourself from Christ if you're dependent upon what you can do. But in Christ, we have the hope of righteousness. We will stand before a holy God clean and righteous, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness that he paid for on the cross. And then the sixth word there is love. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. What a beautiful picture. When we are walking in the freedom that Christ offers us, we've been set free by Christ, and we're, we're living in that freedom. Go back to Galatians 2, Paul's kind of anthem there. I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Listen to those words, and think about the words that Paul associates with our freedom in Christ. Grace, his spirit, faith, hope, righteousness, and love. And would you rather walk in a life characterized by those words or in a life characterized by these words? Slavery, a yoke, obligation, law, alienation, and falling away from Christ. That's the difference. That's why Paul's so adamant that he fights so hard. And why he's given us one command in relation to this here in this, this passage. The command is this, stand firm. Stand firm. And what Paul's talking about here is he's saying stand firm on the gospel. Don't give an inch. Don't allow one tidbit of law, one tidbit of religious exercise, one tidbit of religion. Don't let any of that permeate your relationship with Christ. Don't let any of that begin to impact you to where you're relying on that thing, no matter how good that thing is. Don't allow any of that to become a measure or to become an obligation or to become a requirement for relationship with the one true living God.
stand firm. You were running well. He uses, Paul, Paul, he gets all over the place here in his metaphors. He uses an athletic metaphor. He uses a legal metaphor. He uses a, me, a baking metaphor. Uh, he says, you were running well. He uses an athletic metaphor, a picture here. You're running the race pretty well, Galatians. And then somebody jumped out and tripped you. Uh, who perverted you or prevented you? The word that he uses there is kind of the word of somebody that jumped out in the middle of the race and was blocking one of the runners. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding to the truth? Who derailed your walk? You were doing great. What caused you to trip up? What caused you to, to go sideways? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It, it, that persuasion was men who were very persuasive in speech, who took a lot of really cool ideas from their religion and were bringing it back to the Galatians and arguing that what Paul was teaching them was not enough. And so it reminded me of, of Paul's words in Colossians chapter two where he addresses this issue. Beginning in verse four, he says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. There's a lot of human thinking, a lot of human arguments that may sound reasonable that are not from God's word. So Paul says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable, for I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Sounds very familiar because he asked that question about the Galatians. He asked the Galatians, wait a minute. How did you receive Christ? Did you receive him by faith or did you receive him through the law? Okay, it's rhetorical. You received him by faith. Then walk by faith. Paul tells the Colossians, just as you have received Christ Jesus, as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition rather than Christ. And Paul goes on to flesh that out a little bit more there in Colossians chapter 2. But Paul is is making this argument that you have to stand firm in your belief that Jesus is enough. Jesus is, is enough. Jesus is all. Jesus is everything. A relationship with Christ is what matters. Because once you say, once you tell somebody, well, you need Jesus and, you've already alienated yourself from Christ from the true, pure gospel. We've been, humans have done it from the beginning of Christianity. They were doing it right there in the first century. They were doing it in the second century. For a thousand years, Christianity was dominated by the universal Catholic faith that established a, an entire litany of sacraments that, that you must uh, keep these sacraments so that you could gain enough grace that certainly that if you died and you had enough grace in your bucket, then you'd get to go to heaven. If you didn't quite have enough grace, then you could go to purgatory. Uh, 
But if you were really evil, then you just went straight to hell. And, and there's all kinds of human philosophies that sounded good, that made sense. In fact, we kind of like them because it gives us a little something to do. It makes it a little bit more about us instead of all about Jesus. It also, some of those human philosophies make it reasonable and it makes us feel a little bit better because you know, maybe I had somebody in my family who they really didn't follow Christ, but they weren't a horrible person, so they had some good deeds. So I could believe that they went to purgatory. Then I could light candles for them, and I could pay indulgences, and I could, I could give money to the Catholic Church. And, and over a period of time, it might be a few dozen years, or it might be a few hundred years, depending on which brother it was, they might get enough grace that they could eventually get out of purgatory into heaven. See, it gives us something to do. That's where religion leads. And human beings are really good about building our religions based on our philosophies of things that sound reasonable. Paul says, don't give an inch. Stick to the gospel. Jesus is enough. And he argues here, I have not changed my message. Apparently some of the word was going out that because Paul still, Paul's Jewish by by upbringing, he probably still did a few things like Jews did. And so there was an, apparently an argument going around. See, even Paul's doing these things. And Paul argues back, no. No. It, it, whether you're circumcised or not uncircumcised, that doesn't matter. I'm not uh, I'm preaching circumcision again. If I was, I wouldn't still be being persecuted. In fact, he said, I'm going to be careful with how I, I put this because you can look at various translations. You can see what he really means here. Remember, Paul was dealing with the circumcisers who said that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul finally says here, he says, I wish that those who were disturbing you, those who were stirring things up in the church with this false teaching on circumcision would just go ahead and mutilate themselves. Don't just circumcise yourself. Go all the way. Just mutilate yourself. That's how desperate and how important Paul thought this was. Let us, in our defense of the gospel, stand firm. This morning in your growth group, you're studying Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, the first time that leaders of the entire church got together. Why, what was so important that they were going to get together, that the leaders of all, all across all of these churches and flesh it out. It's the gospel and the very core of the nature of the gospel. There's a lot of things that we could disagree on in our, our understanding about what Scripture teaches and in our interpretation of Scripture. But this is essential. You can't save yourself no matter how hard you try. And there's nothing else that you can do in addition to trusting Christ by faith. There's nothing else that you have to do. Baptism is just an opportunity to show what Christ has already done in your life. It's a step of obedience as you're walking in the Christian faith. But baptism doesn't save you. What saves you is putting your trust and full faith in Christ and Christ alone for your eternal life. And if you're trusting anything else... If your hope is in anything else, if it's in your denomination, if it's in your, your tithing, if it's in your attendance, if your hope is anywhere else other than in Christ and Christ alone, you're missing the point and you're alienating yourself from the true Christ. The gospel is all 
you need. Jesus is necessary and Jesus is enough. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.